Thank you for listening to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care Podcast. The iCritical Care Podcast is copyrighted material and all rights are reserved. Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine or its officers or members. Your host is the Society's Associate Editor for Podcasts, Dr. Richard Savell. Dr. Savell is the Associate Director of the Surgical Intensive Care Unit at Maimonides Medical Center in Brooklyn, New York. He also is an Assistant Professor of Medicine at the Mount Sinai School of Medicine. To contact the editorial staff of the iCritical Care Podcast with questions, comments, or ideas, please email info at sccm.org. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care Podcast. Today is Tuesday, July 3rd, 2007, and I'm your host, Dr. Richard Savell. In today's podcast, we will have an opportunity to speak with Dr. Wes Ely, a professor in the Department of Medicine at Vanderbilt University School of Medicine in Nashville, Tennessee. Dr. Ely is an outcomes researcher with the Vanderbilt Center for Health Services Research, and he presented What's New in Delirium Management during the Society's 36th Critical Care Congress, uh, and the presentation itself was featured in the June issue of Critical Connections as part of the Congress Review. Please visit www.sccm.org slash criticalconnections to access the article and receive continuing education credit as part of Congress Review. The reference is Critical Connections, 2007, Volume 6, Number 3, page 22. In addition to his interests in sedation and delirium, Dr. Ely has focused on improving care and outcomes of critically ill patients with sepsis and respiratory failure with a special emphasis on the problems facing elderly patients in the ICU, such as weaning from mechanical ventilation, cognitive impairment in the ICU, neuropsychological deficits, as well as quality of death in the intensive care unit. Dr. Ely has made numerous national and international presentations, is currently participating in several multicenter clinical trials in sepsis and ARDS, and has written or co-authored more than 150 articles, book chapters, and editorials. We are happy to have him here with us today on the iCritical Care podcast. Thank you so much. Thank you. It's my privilege to be here, Dr. Seville. Um, I thought as a, as a good question, we could start out by saying, why should the average critical cl- care clinician want to be able to care about delirium in the ICU or know how to diagnose it? I'm really glad you asked that question because delirium in the ICU is essentially uh, a huge public health concern that most of us in intensive care medicine are never really trained to realize. Here are some numbers, some take-home numbers for you to remember, Dr. Savell. Eight out of ten, as high as eight out of ten ICU patients will develop this form of organ dysfunction in the ICU. Now, for non-ventilated people, it could be between 20 and 50 percent, but for ventilated people, it's generally between 50 and 80 percent of our ICU patients will develop brain organ dysfunction manifested as delirium. So we want to think of this delirium as a form of organ dysfunction, just like shock is organ dysfunction for the cardiovascular system, or hypoxemia is a manifestation of organ dysfunction of the lung, pulmonary system. So this organ dysfunction, by the way, has been independently associated with higher rates of death at six months. So we have a threefold increased likelihood of dying by uh, six months if we had developed delirium in the intensive care unit and, and this number really 
struck me and kind of blew me down when I determined these data. A tenfold higher rate of long-term cognitive impairment uh, if you had been delirious in the ICU. In fact, a, for every single day that somebody is delirious in the ICU, it appears that they have a 25 to 35% increased risk of long-term cognitive impairment. And so if you do the math on that, Rich, it shows you that after three or four days of delirium, the patient's probably going to have some degree of neuropsychological impairment on the back end of their ICU stay. And uh, as sort of a follow-up to that, and I, and I have a pretty good idea of the answer, but what gets confusing, especially when you're trying to teach residents, is teaching about using sedation scales and discussing the words like, this patient is anxious, this patient is agitated, versus this patient is delirious. And maybe as, a, as an expert, if you could take a few moments and, and talk about that. That's, uh, that's an excellent question, too. The concept of a sedation scale is measuring everything from anxiety to depressed consciousness in the form of lethargy, etc., but it, it gets at arousal. It doesn't get at the content of consciousness. And so consciousness really should be defined as arousal plus content. So think of these two instruments, sedation scales and delirium monitoring instruments, as sister instruments that are complementary. In order to evaluate consciousness in our patients, we should both be measuring arousability and content of consciousness. So these things go together. And what's so crazy in critical care is that for 20 years, we've basically just been paying attention to half of consciousness, which is just the sedation component of things or the arousability. So now we have validated instruments like the CAM-ICU, the Confusion Assessment Method for the ICU, or the ICU Delirium Screening Checklist from the Canadian group uh, led by Joanna Skrobik. And either of these instruments helps us with that second component of consciousness. Uh, and one last uh, part of the answer to your question, Dr. Savelle, is this. Related to anxiety versus lethargy, delirium should be thought of as having motoric subtypes. And these motoric subtypes are either hyperactive delirium or hypoactive delirium, which is also referred to as quiet delirium. Now, the delirium that most people think of when you say somebody's delirious is the first, the hyperactive component, where people are pulling out lines and tubes. But in truth... So that would be more the classic agitated delirium. That's a classic agitated delirium. And for that, we generally use things like haloperidol, etc. Uh, the much more common and more worrisome type of delirium is the type that you would miss. This type would be invisible. It's the hypoactive or quiet delirium. This is just a little old lady sitting in the bed, minding her own business on a ventilator, and she opens her eyes when you speak to her, and she might nod yes or no to, is she in any pain? But her mind is no more making sense out of that than flying to the moon. I like to say that there's a light on, but nobody's really home. And in this situation, you have to dive just a bit deeper with a content assessment like the CAM-ICU. And in order to do that, you have to evaluate her for her ability to pay attention. Dr. Reilly, I thought next that we would have you walk through your CAM-ICU delirium assessment form perhaps to best determine how to optimally diagnose the critically ill patient with delirium. Sure, Richard. The diagnosis is not nearly as difficult as one might think, and it really hinges on detecting the presence of inattention. So the two cardinal features of delirium are a change in mental status or fluctuation in mental status, and this is typically measured and monitored using validated sedation scales. And then the second cardinal feature, uh, after you have detected either a change 
from baseline or fluctuation in mental status. The second feature would be inattention, simply the inability of somebody to pay attention. And to detect that, we typically have people squeeze our hands on a certain letter, for example, the letter A. So you would spell save a heart is a, a typical string of letters that we use so that we can remember the string. And we use A's and non-A's and say, Miss Smith, squeeze my hand whenever you hear the letter A. And then if we say an S, we don't want her to squeeze. If we say an A, we do want her to squeeze. And somebody is labeled as attentive if they can get eight out of 10 correct on the this attention screening exam. If they get fewer than eight, or if they don't squeeze at all because they're just not able to understand the, and pay attention at all to the command, then of course they are labeled as in, inattentive, and that is the cardinal feature of delirium. Um, and then I, I see that uh, there are other ways of measuring inattention. Can you talk about that for a moment? Yes, yeah, sometimes people have such profound critical illness, myelineuropathy, or perhaps they could even be paralyzed, in which case you wouldn't be able to have them squeeze your hand. So we have invented another way. Actually, we didn't invent it. We drew from the psychological uh, literature and tools and used a picture attention screening exam rather than this verbal or auditory version. And there we simply show pictures to the patient. And we have, again, 10 pictures, just like we had 10 letters. And the way we do that is we show them five like a house, a fork, a pair of pants, a boat, a cat. And then we say, after they've seen those five, we say, Miss Smith, now I'm going to show you ten pictures, and you simply nod your head yes if you just saw this picture, or no if you didn't just see this picture. And once again, if they get eight or more right, then they are attentive. If they get fewer than eight right, then they are inattentive. So there's an auditory way and a visual way of doing this attention screening exam. And uh, from what I understand, um, looking at your website, you can actually download those pictures from your website. Do you want to take this time to uh, talk a little bit about your website? Well, absolutely. Before I get through that, let me say that uh, in, in all of delirium evaluations, probably we only use the pictures around 5 to 10% of the time. So the vast majority of the time, it's just you at the bedside with your hands touching your patient and examining them. When the patient doesn't give you a clear response to the, to the auditory hand-squeezing method, we then go to the pictures. And the pictures end up being a lot of fun. As a clinician, it's great because you really dive just a little bit deeper into how your patient's brain is working, and it absolutely becomes fascinating. I think anybody who tries this will think to themselves, wow, I must have been missing so much over the years. But in order to make clinicians not have to miss out on this anymore, we made a website, and it's called, it's, the URL is www.icudelirium.org, and I laugh when people misspell delirium, but it's D-E-L-I-R-I-U-M, so icudelirium.org, and everything there is free to download. It's a purely educational website and there's nothing proprietary about it. It's just for you, your ICU team, and your patients to achieve better care. The other thing I'll say, Dr. Savell, is that on the website there's a patient family page, and this is designed specifically so that patients and families can understand better what is going on with grandma or grandpa or their spouse in terms of delirium and understand perhaps why it is that they aren't interacting with them, or even after the ICU, why after the ICU they're not able to go back to work, balance their checkbook, help with their kids' homework, and that sort of thing. 
The and and again, the way I like to do this, just to resummarize for the listeners because they're they're listening, yeah. is so the first step is: do we have either acute mental status changes or a fluctuating course, and inattention, as you reemphasized just now, right. and either disorganized thinking or altered level of consciousness? And maybe if you could talk a little bit about the disorganized thinking for a moment. Right. That might so be good. there, the, the CAM ICU, the confusion assessment method for the ICU, has typically four features. The first two features we've just discussed, the change or fluctuation in mental status and the inattention. In order to have delirium, according to the Diagnostic Statistical Manual of the American Psychiatric Association, the DSM, you have to have features one and two and then either three or four. The vast majority of ICU patients come to the diagnosis of delirium by having feature one and two, again, which we've already discussed, and feature four, which is an altered level of consciousness. This simply means anything other than alert. So most people who in the ICU who are delirious have features one, two, and four. If somebody is alert when you're talking to them, though, and evaluating them, then they don't have feature four. You then need to evaluate whether or not they were able to organize their thinking, which is that third feature. And so if they are alert at the time you're evaluating them and looking right at you, then it could be that they're delirious. In order to confirm that diagnosis, you have to make sure they are inattentive, have had a fluctuation in their mental status. That would be features one and two, although I said them backwards. Uh, And then feature three, which is disorganized thinking. And the way we do that to evaluate disorganized thinking, and this is the kind of the most uh, subjective component of the CAM-ICU, is that we ask them some simple questions like, will a stone float on water? Are there fish in the sea? Does one pound weigh more than two? Can you use a hammer to pound a nail? That would be four questions. And we see if they answer them correctly with the right yeses and nos. And then I have them do uh, a simple command where I say, hold up this many fingers. And I hold up two, like a peace sign. And if they do hold up two fingers in one hand with a peace sign, then I say, do the same thing with the other hand. And then it, it turns out that I find out, are they able to then think, Okay, he, he said to hold up this many fingers, that's two, I'll do that. Now he said do it with the other hand. And if they can follow that command, that demonstrates a pretty good amount of organization of thinking. And so that's the way that we come to understand feature three. And they, to get feature three correct in order to have, quote, organized thinking, close quote, you have to get four or five of those points right. That would mean that you had to answer, get the command right with the peace signs or get all four questions right, or some combination thereof. Before we go on to the next part, there was a question I've had trying to memorize this and teach it to the residents, is feature four and feature one sound very similar. Can you talk for a moment about how they're actually different? Is the point that you could have somebody who's been right. having waxing and waning mental status, but right now is is uh, is alert and oriented? Yes, that's exactly the point, and let me reiterate it, but I'm very glad you asked this. So the reason that the American Psychiatric Association has features one and four in there is the following. If feature one is abnormal because the patient is fluctuating over time, and you have a flow sheet, and their sedation score has fluctuated over time, but right now as you evaluate them, they are alert, then that would mean that feature one would be positive, in other words, a fluctuation of mental status. Uh, Feature two perhaps would be positive because of inattention. Feature four could be negative because they are alert right now, and then you need feature three. If the patient is not alert right now, they have something other than alert, and they are lethargic or, or 
you know, depressed consciousness, then feature one and four are both positive. And then you only have to confirm feature two. The reason that the CAM is so easy and so useful at the bedside is that most people have an altered level of consciousness when you're evaluating them. And so all you have to do is figure out if they are inattentive. Um, and if a point, and I, I remember reading this again on your on your diagram here, is if a patient is so has a decreased level of consciousness to the point that they can't interact with you, does that mean that they automatically have the delirium or they can't even be assessed for it? Uh, well, there are two different gradations. If somebody was so um, depressed in their consciousness that they wouldn't respond to verbal stimulation at all, meaning that you had to have physical stimulation to get any response from your patient, then we call them coma or stupor. So we don't call that delirium, and we don't do the rest of the camp. If, however, when you go to your patient, you say, Miss Smith, open your eyes, and she does that, and she responds to verbal stimulation, then she technically is in the category where she's alert enough that we will categorize her as delirious. So for the person who's pretty depressed in consciousness, whether it be due to drugs or disease, by the way, so just because they're depressed in consciousness due to benzodiazepine drips or narcotics doesn't mean that we don't call it delirium. It's still delirium. It just may, that, may mean that you think it's, it's due to iatrogenesis. Uh, if they do respond to verbal stimulation but do none of the other commands, we call that CAM-positive and delirious. Well, Dr. Ely, one of the things I like as, a, as being a big fan of yours is you not only teach how to diagnose this, but why it is so important to diagnose it and some of the important cutting-edge areas about what can be done once the diagnosis has been made. If you'd like to take it from there, that would be great. The thing that I sometimes get annoyed with myself about as an intensivist is that I tend to think if I don't have all the answers, I won't get started on addressing the problems that my patients are experiencing. And that's crazy. In this situation, I've had ICUs, for example, say, well, you know, we're not going to monitor delirium anymore unless you tell us how to deal with it. So this is one of these glass half full things where we clearly have a lot of information, which I'll review in just a moment here, about how to address as a good clinician the issue of brain organ dysfunction or delirium in the ICU. But we don't have all the answers. So in the future years, we'll be getting more and more evidence-based data from ongoing randomized controlled trials. But in the meantime, there are lots of things you can do when you find out that somebody is CAM positive. If my patient is CAM positive, I immediately begin to think about things like stopping or substituting deliriogenic medications. If my patients are on benzos or anticholinergics or on steroids, for example, I ask myself, do they, does the patient really need those drugs and can I get rid of those or perhaps substitute something that's not uh, prominent anti, that doesn't have prominent anticholinergic properties, therefore leading to delirium. I also think about analgesia. Is my patient in pain? And if so, pain control definitely decreases delirium. That's been shown clearly in the literature. The next thing is that we would want to pay attention to sleep-wake cycles and think about non-pharmacological things. And we have on our website, our www.icudelirium.org, under delirium management, we have a delirium protocol that I consider kind of a work in progress, but it has a non-pharmacological protocol on it that includes things like orienting the patient, that is providing visual and hearing aids, encouraging communication and reorienting the patient, having familiar objects around the patient from their home, attempting consistency in the nursing staff is another thing so the patient cannot be you know, jostled back and forth with so many different personnel. 
Uh, we put the TV on during the day with news to allow them to get oriented that way. And even sometimes things like nonverbal music. And these things may sound warm and fuzzy, but they've actually been shown in randomized controlled trials to decrease delirium rates in non-ICU settings. The other thing we pay attention to, just to finish this up, is environment, sleep hygiene. Lights off during the night, lights on during the day, baths during the day and not at night, and uh, watching things like our vital signs, blood pressure, hypoxemia, and metabolic derangements and infections. No, I was, I was just going to follow up uh, that the, one of the things I've learned the most doing these podcasts is the impact of holistic practices really improving outcomes, uh, such as the ones you mentioned. Really, I, I, I really encourage people to think about these things because ICU medicine is not all about beeps and buzzers. There's a lot of just good old-fashioned, what as a clinician should I do for my patient today that doesn't have to do with some fancy high-tech monitor. And delirium very much falls into the realm of this. I thought we'd let you conclude, Dr. Ely, with talking about some cutting-edge data that you uh, discussed uh, here in this Congress review, the Awaking and Breathing Control Trial, and uh, let you take it from there. Absolutely. This is a very exciting uh, investigation, which was a multicenter study combining or linking the concept of spontaneous breathing trials with spontaneous awakening trials. The first step of this protocol would be step A, awakening trials, and the second step is step B, breathing trials. So A, awakening, B, breathing. It's just, you know, keep it simple and hopefully make a sticky message that people will remember. So in order to conduct this study, we did a randomized controlled trial of 335 patients at Vanderbilt and St. Thomas Hospital in Nashville, Hospital University of Pennsylvania, and Presbyterian Hospital in Philadelphia, and then the University of Chicago. And at these five centers, we randomized patients to either get only a daily spontaneous breathing trial, the SBT, and in that control arm, the sedatives were managed according to patient-targeted sedation, uh, which was adopted by each individual ICU, but with no mandated spontaneous awakening trial or daily cessation of sedatives and analgesics. In the intervention group, they started with step A, awakening with complete cessation of sedatives and analgesics, unless there was ongoing pain, in which case the analgesics were continued, and then followed by step B, breathing trial. And what we found is that when patients had the combination, the link of the awakening and the breathing trials, they got about four, in excess of four days shorter ICU stay and hospital stay, important trends in improvements in mortality and dramatic reductions in the overall duration of coma. There was a huge difference in resource utilization in this investigation, which I think will translate into uh, big-time improvements in overall patient outcomes from these big, you know, big heavy-hitting clinical outcomes such as ICU and hospital length of stay. And I was reading in uh, an article discussing this that the, one of the motivations for you to do this study was that even if clinicians were uh, trying to practice evidence-based medicine and doing daily spontaneous breathing trials, the concept of, in a formal fashion, awakening people wasn't happening enough? Right. Well, if you think about it, medicine is too siloed, and in the ICU, this is certainly the case. So, for example, the sedation is usually handled by the nurses, and the spontaneous breathing trials is usually handled by the respiratory therapist. Some ICUs 
have strong nursing support in this area, and the sedation gets handled well. Some ICUs have strong therapists, and their breathing trials get conducted well. But nobody has ever studied linking these two things to de-silo the medical approach to these critically ill people. So in this investigation, we simply took this very simple idea. What if we de-silo this and, put, and link these things together? How much of a difference will that make if they are formally linked? So they have to be done as a, as a tandem. And it made a huge difference. And this is in a day and age, and I'd like to point this out, in which everybody already knows that daily awakening trials, as shown by Cress, uh, were good in and of themselves, and that spontaneous breathing trials, as shown by us in the New England Journal in 1996 and many others since then, are also helpful at expediting weaning. But people generally, less than 50% of the time, even now in 2007, get either or of these two steps in their management of ventilation. Right. It was a question I wanted to ask you is, were there, there must have been roundtable ethical discussions about, well, we're going to be performing these at these medical centers where people are already getting daily awakening and we didn't, we weren't comfortable randomizing people to not getting that. Can you talk about that? Absolutely, Rich. And this is, this is a conversation that took place. And remember that the University of Chicago actually participated in this study. That is J.P. Kress and Jesse Hall and Ann Pullman. They were part of this redo investigation because at their center, the center that did the original trial, after in the out-of-study setting, they found that people weren't really getting routine spontaneous awakening trials. And so if the, if the center that published the New England Journal paper isn't doing it that routinely, surely uh, we know that people out in the uh, other t- sorts of hospitals might not be doing such a great job with it either. But the main point about why this study was considered ethical is that there was clinical equipoise. Clinical equipoise just means are, are the majority of people even getting this form of the intervention? And the truth is that they aren't. So it was still a question that could be asked, like when there were issues with studying the uh, PA catheter. Was there clinical equipoise that it was an askable question? Askable and thankfully answerable. And now our patients will be the beneficiaries if we will simply adopt this A plus B approach. And what we call is the wake up and breathe approach. Just have your patients wake up and breathe and test their ability to wake up and then test their ability to breathe. And if they do pass this wake up and breathe test, they're ready to come off the ventilator and you can average increase or shorten their ICU stay, shorten their ICU stay by four days and shorten their hospital stay by four days as well. Well, the last points I'd make is that other ongoing investigations which are being done now for example, with randomized control trials, double-blinded, using antipsychotics, we have one called the MIND ICU, the MIND study, and we're randomizing haloperidol to an atypical antipsychotic versus a placebo. We also are studying alternative sedation regimens and uh, pitting uh, alpha-2 agonists up against the typical GABA agonists, such as benzodiazepines, and the alpha-2 agonists we've been studying is dexmedetomidine. Uh, I, do, I, w- I do want to disclose that I have grant and honoraria support from Pfizer, Hospira, and Eli Lilly. I don't think that any of my comments today have been anything other than evidence-based, but I do think it's important to disclose any of these uh, potential conflicts of interest. My comments have remained evidence-based, and I do want to urge people, if they'd like, to go to our website. It's purely educational, this icudelirium.org 
and let us know. You can contact me through the website and let me know how we might be of help to you in your patient management and if there's anything that we can do or instruments we can provide to you and your clinical practice and your ICU team. We're here to help and our goal ultimately is to improve the lives of patients that we'll never meet and that's why we're doing all this. So it's been a real privilege for me to be a part of this podcast. We've had an opportunity today to uh, speak with somebody I am a big fan of, Dr. Wes Ely. He's a professor at Vanderbilt and very well known within the critical care community, a true leader in our field. And we've been talking today about sedation and delirium in the ICU and how to help the average intensivist walk that fine line of making sure the patient, when they're on the breathing machine, is comfortable, but that we're assessing them and getting them off the breathing machine as rapidly as is safely possible. Thank you so much for all the work you do and for joining us today. Thank you, Dr. Seville, and I certainly appreciate this opportunity. This concludes our podcast for Tuesday, July 3rd, 2007. Critical Connections is the official bi-monthly news magazine of the Society of Critical Care Medicine, offering the latest information about critical care to healthcare professionals. Members of the Society of Critical Care Medicine receive a free subscription as well as other benefits. For more information, visit www.sccm.org. Thanks again for listening. As a general study rule, practitioners should start preparing intensively for their board exams at least one year in advance. Register today for the Society of Critical Care Medicine's Adult and Pediatric Multiprofessional Critical Care Review Courses to be held August 7th through 11th, 2007 in Chicago, Illinois, USA. As a registered participant of a review course, you'll receive a free study aid worth $175. In addition, you can enhance your board review by registering for one of two pre-courses, the ABIM Critical Care Self-Evaluation Process Module Review or the Rapid Response System Training. Build a solid foundation and further your study efforts with the only multi-professional association that focuses solely on critical care. Register today by visiting www.sccm.org or calling 1-847-827-6888.